Turn your attention this morning once again to the Old Testament book of Hosea. Probably bring a couple more messages from this. Maybe next Sunday be maybe the last one on this. Um, I've kind of realized something a little bit in uh, the last few weeks. Periodically, I've tried to preach through books of the Bible, and that sort of kind of starts off real good in the beginning, and then kind of wanes a few Sundays into it. And I realize maybe I don't have the attention span for something like that. Um, to go verse by verse is somewhat of a tedious thing, I think, for me. Uh, I've enjoyed much more of taking a broader sweep of the understanding of a book subject by subject or maybe sections at a time. And I've kind of enjoyed the way that we've tried to present Hosea. So uh, that's kind of what we've tried to do here this first month of the year is just kind of give an overview of the book of Hosea and maybe encourage you uh, to do reading on your own and see what uh, the Lord will reveal unto you about this book or any book that you are studying in at the moment. When we began this, we defined it as a vile declaration against the you know atrocious conduct and the abhorrent character of a ungrateful, backslidden, and rebellious nation. God is speaking with the nation of Israel just prior to them going into their Babylonian captivity. But despite, despite the negativity that, that comes from a lot of portions of this book, the key verse, I believe, is, is Hosea chapter 13 and verse 9 uh, that we read to you. Earlier, Hosea 13 and verse 9 says, O Israel, thou destroyest thyself, or thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thy help. Without that last phrase, I think all of life would just be worthless. Because we do recognize from our own standpoint um, the one enemy that we've had to deal with the most in life is ourself. I've worked against myself the most. Other people have harmed us, that is true. Other, other people have been a problem. Other people have been a thorn in your flesh. But the person that you've had the most problem with is the person you look at in the mirror every morning. You, you know, when you, when you try and tell somebody about the grace of God, you find out that there are a lot of people who maybe use your vocabulary, but they don't use your dictionary. They use the same words that you use, but the words they use don't have the same meaning as the words that you use. I don't, I don't think it's, it's, possible to properly understand just how rich the grace of God is unless you first understand just how depraved man is. 
if you don't have the right perspective on your depravity, you're not going to be able to see how good and how rich the grace of God truly is. When, when you're standing before the King and you know you're guilty and you know you deserve a sentence of condemnation, if you know just how guilty you are, then you know just how surprised you are when He sets you free. So if, if the key theme or the key verse to the book of Hosea as a whole is chapter 13 and verse 9, I would submit to you that in this book there's several verses, but one in particular we're going to look at this morning that would be, maybe be a key thing to us. Um, the first three chapters of Hosea deal with um, Hosea marrying a woman named Gomer. Now, we address this issue in the first sermon as to whether or not the woman Gomer married in the first chapter and then the one he dealt with in the, se in the third chapter are the same person. Um, from one aspect, I don't think they are, but then you go back and you read it, and I, I think that an argument can be made for them being the same person. That's a sermon for another time. But suffice it to say, after chapter 3, 37 times the tribe of Ephraim is addressed in this book. And God's complaint, while it may be with the ten northern tribes called Israel, once in a while with Judah, a complaint comes up overwhelmingly he has a problem with the tribe of Ephraim. Now, those of you that have done any Bible reading, though, you realize Ephraim was not an original tribe of Israel. The 12 sons of Jacob, Ephraim is not included in that. E Ephraim is not a son of Jacob. E Ephraim is a son of Joseph. But I'd like for you to notice here that if, if chapter 13 is... pivotal verse for us. Hosea 11 also is. Hosea 11 verse 8 says, How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? How shall I make thee as Adma? How shall I set thee as Zeboam? And actually these, these, these towns, Adma and Zeboam, they were encompassed in what the Lord did in the cities of, to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were outlying cities of that destruction. He's speculating. He's postulating here. Ephraim, how shall I deal with thee? Now, I realize that the Lord is not asking himself for information. I realize that the Lord is, is putting this out to Ephraim for Ephraim to consider this. The Lord goes on to say, Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger, 
And I will not return to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man. The Holy One in the midst of thee and I will not enter into the city. In the midst of a declaration against Israel and specifically the tribe of Ephraim, the Lord assures them that I will not utterly destroy them. The magnitude of this statement is possibly not truly understood unless you understand the magnitude of the sins of Ephraim. Um, <clears throat> let's, let's go back to Genesis just for a moment. In, in Genesis chapter 41, you find the beginning of Ephraim. Genesis 41, these are the words of Joseph as he is down in Egypt. Um, second in command in Egypt only to Pharaoh himself. And God bears or allows him to bear uh, two sons. The first one is Manasseh and the second one is Ephraim. Uh, their names and their meanings are located in Genesis 41, verse 51. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God said, He hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. So Manasseh's name means forgetfulness. You go back and study the life of Joseph, which we have done on several occasions here. You know that there are a lot of problems in Joseph's life that he needs to forget. There are a lot of hurtful and harmful things that occur to him by his brothers in his own house that if he is not able to forget those things and move beyond those things, he can't make anything of his life. And so we all know people, we've seen people who cannot get past their past. They're constantly weighed down by what happened in the past. The racial undertones in America today are because people will not move past what happened in the past. They're constantly stirring up a fire, stirring up a fight, stirring up trouble because of something that happened hundreds of years ago or two hundreds of years ago that none of us, black or white, were involved in. And because people refuse to forget what happened in the past, they cannot move forward in the future. And I'd like for you to notice here, the first child that God allows Joseph to bring forth is the child Manasseh, meaning forgetfulness. Then on the hills of that, there's a second son, and this is verse 52 of Genesis 41, and this is Ephraim. He had a second son, called his name Ephraim, for God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. So first there is forgetfulness, then there is fruitfulness. And, and the reason that that is important is that if somebody spends all their time bitter, being bitter about the past, they cannot be positive about the future. Fast forward just a few chapters to uh, Genesis 48, and Jacob is dying. As Jacob is dying, he blesses all of his sons, 
those 12 tribes. But here, Joseph brings to him then his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, for Jacob to bless them. You would think that he would bless Manasseh, the firstborn, the most, and Ephraim, the secondborn, the least, because that's the way the entirety of the Old Testament is laid out. But that's not what Jacob does. In Genesis 48, uh, really to read this, you'd have to start reading about uh, verse 13 all the way down to verse 20. But we'll just kind of get right here in uh, the middle of this and say verse 14, that, it, that Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it upon Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand upon Manasseh's head, guiding his hands wittingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Instead of blessing as we think he ought to, he reverses the blessing and he blesses the younger first and then he blesses the older. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Let me, let me ask you this. All of us like to be prosperous, right? All of us like to have more money than we can spend, right? Amen. Amen. Thank one honest, one honest person. There we go. Uh, you know. Ten lepers were healed, and one of them said thank you. So, at any rate, uh, we all like to be prosperous, right? There's a problem with this, though. Anytime you put prosperity above humility, you're either going to end up with tyranny or greed. See, the problem in America is not capitalism. I, I get tired of hearing people whine and cry about the problems of capitalism. People whine and cry about capitalism as they drink their $5 Starbucks and post their blog on their $1,200 MacBook and they complain about capitalism. No, capitalism has given you the opportunity to be the dummy you are. The problem is not capitalism. The problem is human greed and human depravity. And any time you put prosperity above humility or gratefulness, you always end up with tyranny or greed. You say, prove it, preacher. Thank you for asking. Turn with me now to the book of Hosea. Because as Hosea is prophesying to the nation of Israel and tribe of Ephraim specifically, he's actually prophesying during a time of great material prosperity, but spiritual bankruptcy. He, he's addressing a nation that is in the midst of a great material prosperity, but spiritually they're bankrupt. Hosea chapter 12 and verse 7. This is one of the sins of Ephraim that is laid out in this book. Verse 7 says, He is a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loveth to oppress. And Ephraim said, Yet I am become rich. I have found me out substance. In all my labors they shall find none iniquity in me that were sin. Hosea says the balances of deceit are in his hand. So, in other words, the scale in which you measure a product's worth 
based on what you're selling it to somebody for, the balance is deceitful and it's tipped in your favor. In other words, a businessman is selling a house with rotten floors but doesn't tell you about it. They're selling you a product that's supposed to last a lifetime, lifetime warranty. And then when you call customer service, you're put on hold for you're put on hold until your call is no longer important to you. The problem is not capitalism, the problem is greed. But Ephraim says, I've become rich. That's that's the most important thing. I've become rich and I've got me a substance. And it doesn't matter. And nobody will say to me that they shall find iniquity or sin in anything that I have done. So, for example, when politicians flood an economy with money that's printed on paper that it's not even worth the paper it's printed on, you think that's free money. It is not free money. Because once money goes into an economy and overinflates the economy and we don't have gold to back up the money we're sending out, prices have to go up to counteract the flood of money that's in the market. That's why you have something called inflation. The government is going to get back that free money from you through higher taxes. That's the way it works. The older generation understands this. The younger generation coming out of college now is being taught everything's free and it's everybody else's fault but yours. Here you have laid out in the Bible, what, 3,000 years ago, the same problems then that we're dealing with now. The sins of Ephraim are a dark and dreadful thing. As you go through and you read the sins of Ephraim, just uh, you don't have to tell me. And as we go through here and we look at some of these, I don't, I don't have time to look at all of these. As I said earlier, the, the, I think I said earlier, the nation of the, the tribe of Ephraim is mentioned about 37 times from chapter 4 to the end of the book. So we don't have time between now and 3 o'clock to answer all of those verses. But you just go through here and, and you look at this and you figure out at what point are you yourself done with Ephraim? There's something else that's contained in uh, this book. It's not, not just dealing with the sins of Ephraim, but there's another subject that's uh, laid out here for us. And eight times in this book of Hosea is the subject of remember and forget laid out for us. Appreciate the prayer that was mentioned before or was mentioned in the prayer before this, that, uh, you know, remember thy Creator in the days of thy youth. Uh, because there's going to come a time when you're really going to need Him. Remembrance is a powerful thing. Um, forgetting is even worse. But I'd like for you to notice something here. In Hosea chapter 7, there's a remembrance that's laid out in Hosea chapter 7 that I think a lot of people don't take into account in their daily life. Hosea chapter 7 and verse 2 says, well, verse 1. Hosea 7 verse 1 says, When I would have healed Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim 
was discovered and the wickedness of Samaria. And they commit falsehood, and the thief cometh in, and the troop of robbers spoileth without. And they consider not in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their own doings have beset them about, they are before my face. The Lord says concerning people, whether it's Ephraim, or whether it's the city of Samaria that's under consideration here, or whether it's you and me. He says, we forget. We do not consider that God remembers all our wickedness. Now, <clears throat> this is a heap mo preaching for another time, as, as they say. And perhaps we will delve into this a little bit more next week. But you have to realize it's impossible for God to forget anything. He doesn't forget like you and I forget. I forget because I fail to remember. I just don't have... Maybe I didn't care to remember. Have y'all ever had a situation like that? You just didn't care to remember. Or, or you did care, but you didn't write it down. I don't need to write that down. Nobody's ever had that problem, have they? That we forget because we have failure in us. We forget because... We are not God. God does not have the ability to forget anything. So in order for him to do, as he would say in the book of Ezekiel, I will remember no more. It's not that he's going to forget it because he can't remember. He's going to have to do something else with it. And that's, that's a sermon for another time. But we need to understand this. He remembers wickedness. He knows why we deserve to be judged. He is full aware of this. Nothing surprises God. You might lie to the preacher, but you can't lie to God. And that really ought to scare you to death. That really ought to terrify every one of us. Is we can deceive our neighbors around us, but we cannot deceive God. And there's an interesting thing about this. Eight times the subject of remember and forget is laid out in Hosea, but we'll just look at a couple of them. So, for example, in uh, Hosea 13, um, verse 6 says, According to their pasture, so were they filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. Hosea 13, verse 6 says, Therefore have they forgotten me. Uh, we don't have a problem with people forgetting about church in days of prosperity in America, do we? we? We don't have a problem with that, do we? When things are going good, people don't forget God, do they? When things are great, people don't forget God, do they? Um, posted a video on Facebook the other day of a, a man who had spent some time in China. He was there for... Uh, a few days teaching people. And he asked the Chinese people, he said, you know, how can we pray for you? And they said, you in America sit in public assembly without fear of persecution. Pray that we can be just like you. Now, <clears throat> to set up a little bit of this, the man had asked them, 
when he started his, his lecture and his teaching, he says, what will happen if the authorities find out I am here? And the 22 men that were there said, you will be deported in 24 hours and we will all go to jail. And so he says, well, how many of y'all have been to jail? And out of the 22, 18 of them had been to jail for the fact. And they said, you know, we want to be like y'all where we can meet without fear of the government. And the man said, I, I'm not going to pray for that. He says, in my country, in America, if people have to drive over 30 minutes, they don't come. These people in China rode on a train for 13 hours to get to where they were at this building. He said, if we don't have padded pews, people don't come back. These folks in China had sat on a hard wooden floor for three days. He says, if we don't have air conditioning, people don't come. Y'all have sat here in the heat of the day without air conditioning. We have Bibles, multiple Bibles in our homes. Very few people read them. Those people were memorizing the Bible from pieces of paper that people were smuggling into jails when they were there. He said, there's no way I'm going to pray for you to be like us. He says, I probably need to pray for us to be like you. In days of prosperity, people by human nature forget God. They forget to be thankful. They forget to be grateful. And they forget to be honest sometimes too. Um, to give you another one here in uh, Hosea chapter uh, 4. This is probably the most uh, well-known verse of Hosea. If you were to ask a number, a number of people to quote some verse from Hosea, it might be Hosea 4 and verse 6. He says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. That thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. If, if that doesn't cause you to pause and evaluate some things in life, I don't know what will. Because God did not say, because you have forgotten me, I will forget you. He says, because you have forgotten me, I will forget your children. And as a parent, there's no worse statement you can read than a statement. We are inundated in this nation with people mocking those who learn. And I'm really not even talking about those in university. The universities in our nation and much around this world have become a joke. They really have. Uh, they're fighting more for diversity and equity and garbage like that, and they're not really seeking out truth. But really what I'm talking about is that the churches in America who stand up and say, well, this book is not good enough. This book is too hard to read. Those words are too hard to understand. What you need is some watered-down version of this book. No. What people need to do is sit down and read the book they have. 
Stop rewriting it and start rereading it. Chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, uh, Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. Because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land. Uh, this is, this is kind of where we look at this, and, and we told you earlier that even though Hosea uh, prophesied to the ten northern tribes primarily, whether it applied to the ten northern tribes, the two southern tribes, all twelve of them, it, it doesn't matter. Because whether it's the nation of Israel at that time or America at this time, the application still fits. Because there is no truth, nor mercy, nor knowledge of God in the land, something is going to happen. I know that there are multitudes of people running through America thinking if we can just get rid of God, all our problems will go away. I promise you, if we can get rid of God, our problems will increase. Notice this. He said earlier, the verse I read earlier, he says, they, they consider not that I, that I remember all their wickedness. Well, David had said something sort of like this in the Psalms. He says, you know, uh, I see the wicked ways that people act. And he says, because of this, I take note that there is no fear of God before their eyes. Hosea says in Hosea 4.2, by swearing and lying and killing, and stealing, and committing adultery, they break out, and blood toucheth blood. When a nation forgets God, when God is not in all their thoughts, when God is not primary, this is what happens. Swearing breaks out. Lying breaks out. Killing breaks out. Stealing breaks out. Committing adultery breaks out. And notice what it says. It breaks out and blood touches blood. How much killing in a place does there have to be for blood to touch blood? A lot of it. Swearing and lying and killing. There was a Presbyterian preacher who fought against the release of the movie Gone with the Wind. The very last line of the movie contained the very first curse word ever in American cinema. And it was just one word. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He fought it tooth and nail. And his friends and people around him Weary him over this. You're making too big of a deal of just one word. Where are we today? Have we digressed from that? Have we kept moderate with it and said, well, it's just one word. All we need is one word in movies. Or is our nation filled with? that you can't even have 
public debate over an issue without it very quickly turning into a swearing contest and a name-calling contest. And if I can't kill you physically, I'll kill your character in the public eye. In this chapter 4, the sins, some of the sins of Ephraim are laid out, as we've looked here in verse 2, of their moral decay and depravity. Next thing that you'll notice about this, um, beginning in verses 7 through 9, for example, he says, And they were increased, so they sinned against me. Therefore will I change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people, and they set their heart on their iniquity. And there shall be like people like priests. And I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their doings. What you have here is a failure of leadership. Uh, like people, like priests. That phrase is backwards. Like people, like priests. As the people are acting, then the priests are acting. So, in other words, if your congregation is full of sodomites, we found it popular in America to glorify the sodomite agenda. Instead of the priest standing up and saying, no, marriage is one man and one woman for life. That's the way God intended for it. That's the way God ordained it. We've switched that, and as whatever's popular with the people comes out of the mouth of the priest, and you have a failure of leadership. Second thing that you find out here is verse 10 through verse 12. For they shall eat and not have enough. They shall commit a whoredoms and shall not increase, because they've left off to take heed to the Lord. Whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. My people ask counsel at their stocks, and their staff declare unto them, for the spirit of whoredoms have caused them to err, and they've gone a whoring from under their God. <clears throat> what do you have here now? Personal discontentment. Nothing they do makes them happy. Notice what it said. They eat and they don't have enough. They commit whoredoms and they shall not increase. Everything that they do brings misery to their life. When you forget God and you attempt to chart a course that is not in His honor, it brings misery and personal discontent. And, and right in the middle of that, verse 11, whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. <clears throat> the more that sex sells in America on the TV screen and on the movie screen, the less people really know how to love. And it's very interesting how when Solomon described this in the book of Proverbs, he said that a man would sell his soul for a morsel of bread. And in that chapter where he's talking about that, what he's talking about is a man who will give up everything he has just for a night with a woman. And he said it's pitiful. 
uh, Calvin and Hobbes was an, was an old, was a cartoon in the, in the, news, in the newspaper. We look at it as a little, a little boy and a great big orange tiger. That's not the way it started out, actually. Uh, the Calvin in Calvin and Hobbes was John Calvin, the theologian. It was a cartoon of, of two theologians of that time who would uh, banter with each other back in the day. But one specific cartoon I'm talking about is, is that in this cartoon panel, the question was, or the question, the statement was raised, Yes, every man has his price, but the disappointing thing is, is that his price is too low. Every man has a price for which he can be bought. The, the disappointment is his price is so low. When your life is consistent of chasing whoredom and chasing wine, There's not much else in life that interests you. And when there's not much else that interests you, there's no real progress that will be made in your life. People think that when the church preaches against sin, uh, we're just being a bunch of fuddy-duddies. And you don't want anybody to have any fun well, I found out that that word fun means different things to different people. When I was in high school, I would hear on Monday mornings how fun the past weekend was. And part of that fun was throwing up in the toilet for three days because they were so drunk from the day before. And part of that fun was waking up somewhere where they didn't know where they were. And I just never figured out how that was fun. Then you get down here in, uh, let's see, <clears throat> verse 16. For Israel slideth back as a backsliding heifer. Now the Lord will feed them as a lamb in a large place, and Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. The last thing that you see here, and it doesn't have to be, this doesn't have to be, you know, step one, step two, step three, it's just the last thing under consideration here, is that when a nation forgets God or when a people forget God, or when a person forgets God, it often ends up in their personal isolation. They don't want to see anybody. They don't want to be around anybody. They don't want to have anybody come around. They just want to just leave me alone. Well, the problem with that concept of just leave me alone is God himself said in Genesis 2, it's not good for the man to be alone. People who isolate themselves away from others oftentimes find themselves in dreadful situations as we discovered about Samson a few weeks ago when we looked at his life, whose life was spent largely in isolation and in the pursuit of the lusts of the flesh. So we've looked at verse 2 of chapter 4, at the moral depravity and the moral decay. It's located in the nation or the tribe of, of Ephraim. 
swearing and lying and killing and stealing. Uh, here's a thought for you. Here, here's something else. The, the first three chapters of this book <clears throat> deal with uh, Hosea marrying uh, an unfaithful wife. Can you think of can you think of any more dreadful sin than the sin of treason and the sin of unfaithfulness? In the 14th century, there was a, an Italian poet named uh, Dante Alighieri. Uh, some of you have heard about him because Alighieri is not really an American name, but uh, Dante is is remembered by a lot of people. He, according to uh, English literature, he wrote one of the greatest literary poems of our time called The Divine Comedy. He, it was a, a three-part book that described, from his perspective, heaven, purgatory, and hell. It's very hard reading, by the way. But if you get into it, what I'm thinking about here is the first book he wrote was called The Inferno. Describes his vision of hell. Now, keep in mind this is written from a Catholic perspective, but it's still written from a biblical mindset nonetheless. In his Inferno, in his description of hell, he had nine levels or nine circles of hell. And each circle was worse than the first one until you get down to the bottom. You had little bitty sins at the top and you have great big sins at the bottom. Now, to us, I don't think there's any greater sin than another one. The blood of Christ didn't have to pay for more of my sins than He did for yours. It was all the same. But in their influence in human beings, Dante put treason at the very bottom. He put lying and treason at the very bottom. If you were Hosea and you had a cheating spouse, would you be more upset that the spouse cheated on you or that the spouse lied? That the spouse said, I uh, agree to forsake all others so long as we both shall live. See, the thing about treason and the thing about lying to think about deceit and deception is it requires you to earn the trust of someone else. All the while you are intending to deceive them in the end. And I think it's interesting that the first record of, of a sin affecting someone else is when the devil lied in the Garden of Eden And he is the one who's described as the, the liar, as a liar and the father of it, for he's a liar from the beginning. And I think it'd be well worth noting that oftentimes, maybe it's not what occurred that we are so upset by, but are we more upset by the fact I was deceived to start with? So you have you have. Hosea dealing with this and, and attempting uh, 
attempting to point this out to the nation of Israel and to Ephraim specifically. And people get the idea that when the church is preaching against sin or when we're preaching against things that are wrong, we're just a bunch of fuddy-duddies. We don't have, want anybody to have any fun. But notice Hosea 5. Hosea 5 and verse 5 says, The pride of Israel doth testify to his face, therefore shall Israel and Ephraim fall in their iniquity. The idea of trying to encourage somebody to turn from a, a wicked way is because you see that if this continues, they will fall in their iniquity. That this will be a downfall to them. Verse 13, let's notice uh, another one of the sins of Ephraim. Verse 13 of chapter 5 says, When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound. All right, so we point out to them, here's an issue, Ephraim. We point out to them, Judah, here, here's an issue. What are you going to do about it? Well, notice what it says here. Then went Ephraim to the Assyrian and sent to King Jareb. Yet could he not heal you nor cure you of your wound. Do you not see this even in America today? If somebody has a problem, they're always seeking out the wrong source. They're always seeking out the wrong place. They're trying to find fulfillment in things. They're trying to find fulfillment in the pursuit of a bigger house, a faster car, a beautiful woman, a handsome man. Hey, you know, hey, I agree. I want to wake up next to somebody that looks pretty and I, I think she wants to wake up next to somebody that looks pretty. But guess what? That beauty going to fade one day. It's going to go out the door like the wind. And there better be something more to this person than the way they look. Because I'd like for you to notice here. Um, well, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but I'll, since I'm kind of on this subject, I'll go over to chapter 7 and verse 9. Chapter 7 and verse 9 says, Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth not. Here is uh, a progressive deterioration that he's not paying attention to. And deterioration is really slow, isn't it? There's a reason I haven't grown back that beard I used to have. I want that beard. I, I, I lie awake at night and realize what a failure I am without that beard. Vikings grew beards. Vikings were men. And they had, they had a word for, for sissies who didn't have beard. It was called women. Problem is, is I have, I don't look at the side of my head very much. My eyes don't go that far around. And over here on the side, I'm starting to see here and there gray hairs, and I know it not. Here, is that, what did you, <clears throat> we'll have conference after church. Uh, this is, let me, let me be honest with you guys. Men, <clears throat> this is why you need a man who loves you. Uh, man, uh, woo! 
second item of conference, deal with the pastor. Uh, men, this is why you need a wife who loves you. Because when she looks at you and you've got hair growing out your ear, I don't know why it grows out my ear. I can't get it to grow out my head, but I get it to grow out my ears. Right, Jeff? Uh, and I get it. I, I get this one hair that grows out my eyebrow, and it's and it's 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 white. It's pure as the driven snow, and I cannot see it, but she can. And here she comes with them tweezers. Hold still. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't know why. But for some reason, God attached the eyebrow to the toe. I have no idea why. But when she pulls that hair and up comes that foot, I, oh, mm. See, there's here and there a hair. And you know what? There's progressive deterioration that you cannot see. And you need somebody to point that out and pull it out. Life's the same way. Here and there, there's a progressive deterioration in the culture and in the people. And you need somebody to point that out. You need the preacher to point it. Stop picking each other like monkeys picking fleas. Uh, you need the preacher to point that out. It says here in uh, chapter 7 and verse 8, that Ethereum have mixed himself among the people. He's kind of lost his identity as uh, a nation that follows God. I get kind of sick of hearing identity politics in America because really your only identity is your relationship with Christ. It doesn't matter if you're black or white, male or female, rich or poor. Your identity is not in human beings. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. And that's all that matters. And it doesn't matter if you're Alabama or Auburn. It really doesn't. One of these days, even God himself is not going to care about Bear Bryant. Did I say that? It, it doesn't matter. Your identity is not in people or in things. Your identity is in Christ. But we see that even now. Too many churches trying to assimilate themselves and and walk hand in hand with the world. Here he says, Ephraim is uh, he hath mixed himself among the people. And then the second thing it says in verse eight is Ephraim is a cake not turned. Uh, <clears throat> cake not. What do you mean a cake not turned? You, you ever made pancakes? What happens to that one side that's on the griddle? It browns. What happens to the side that's on the top? It's still raw. The cake needs to be turned. What happens if the cake is not turned? It's burned on one side and it's raw on the other. It's unbalanced in its life. And, you know, you have a lot of people who are just like that in this world. They're unbalanced in their life. Jesus talked about those people who um, swallowed a camel but strained it a gnat. So, for example, <clears throat> the environmentalists run out here and they tie themselves to the pine tree, and they tie themselves to the great oak. Such a hateful thing for you to cut down a tree, cut down a living thing. So on, on Friday, we're going to go out here, we're going to protest in the woods, 
and keep them from cutting the trees down. We're going to do that Friday because Saturday we've got to go get our abortions. Right? There. Take my turn. Gracious. There is uh, there's so much more that could be talked about, but our time is very quickly getting away. But I told you we wouldn't have time to get into everything, but there's just a few things here. Um, at what point during this conversation that we were talking about how uh, dreadful is, uh, Ephraim is, at what point are you through dealing with Ephraim? Did y'all, did y'all remember that question? Where is your limit of being kind to somebody? Where is your limit to tolerating somebody's foolishness? We all have a limit. I think the problem is sometimes our limit's too short. Um, the problem, though, is somebody's living an ungodly life and they're expecting you to act godly towards them. You need to understand you're dealing with sinners as well. And your penchant for doing what is wrong can be matched with the penchant for somebody else doing wrong, and yet their wrong may be a little different from yours. You can you can require uh, of somebody you can require of somebody something that they can provide, and that really is what the overall uh, concept of Hosea is. That. Hosea is calling the nation of Ephraim, tribe of Ephraim, the nation of Israel, these group of people, he's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to acknowledge their sin and turn from their sin back to their God. Notice, he is, he is not asking them to come and get saved. It's not in this text. He's talking to the people of God who've turned away from their God. They're already people of God. Heaven is their home. And so now let me ask you this. Someone says, well, you've just laid out here a reason that they all ought to be hung, drawn, and quartered. And now you're just going to let them go because heaven is their home? No, when God says, I will not return to destroy Ephraim, He realizes that His anger and His wrath against Ephraim is going to be satisfied. And it was prophesied of this in Isaiah 53. That there would come forth one out of dry ground. That there would be no beauty nor comeliness that we should desire him. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We esteem him stricken, smitten of God. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. The pleasure of God was upon him that it would please God to bruise his son to make his soul an offering for our sin. That the whole purpose in Christ's coming was to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Paul kind of draws on this in the book of Galatians. And he says in Galatians and verse uh, Galatians chapter five, verse thirteen. 
For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. I think Hosea could have stood there that day and said that. I think he could have said to the nation of, of Israel, brethren, you've been called unto liberty. But look at this. He does not say you've been called unto liberty, so therefore live any old way you want to. It's all good. God doesn't care. It's not what he says. He says, brethren, you have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. But by love, serve one another. The reason that God quickens a sinner out of death and sin to life in Christ is not so that sinner can sit around now and just do anything he wants. God quickens you. God quickened me. He set us free from the law of sin and death. To do what with it, though? To serve one another in love. The perplexing thing in life, though, is you've, all, you've heard this statement, it's impossible to please all the people all the time, right? You can't please all the people all the time. You can please all the people some of the time, or some of the people all the time. But you can't please everybody all the time. But you sure as the world can't upset all the people all the time. It's real easy to do that. Brethren, in our families and in our churches, our goal ought to be to serve one another in love. Our goal in our churches and in our families ought to be to do for others in our own house what is good for them. Um, <clears throat> oftentimes, we as Christians... We put two categories in our life. And we know what's wrong and we know what's right. And we say you should do the right and avoid the wrong. And I agree that in some cases there are those two categories. But have y'all ever heard this phrase? Have y'all ever heard this phrase growing up? Good, better, best, never let it rest. Till the good get better and the better is best. Y'all ever heard that? There comes a point of growth, not only in humans, but in discipleship with Christ, where you stop choosing right over wrong and start choosing best over good. There's a lot of decisions in life that you can make that are good decisions. But if you back up and look at it, there are also some decisions that are even better than that. When you start evaluating your life in the presence of Christ from that perspective, there's a lot more joy that can be had. There's a lot more fellowship that can be had. Christ has not saved us through His blood so that we could just wander off and do what we want to and it's all okay and it's all covered by sin because he would remind, you know, the man in John 5 when he healed him there at the 
uh, the five fools there at the house of Bethesda, he would say, go and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. God has promised to deliver us from the wrath to come, which is hell itself. He never promised to deliver us from stupid decisions down here on this earth. That was the devil who promised that. When the devil went up on the high mountain and he told Christ in that second temptation in Matthew 4, he says, cast yourself down. For it says there in the Psalms, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Uh, the devil only quoted that verse halfway. The verse actually says, God shall give his angels charge concerning thee in all thy ways, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. That verse is not to be taken. You go out here, jump off a mountain, dare God to uh, break the law of gravity for your pathetic self. A lot of times we put ourselves in a position to need God's help and then complain He didn't help us out of it. Where in the beginning, if we'd have just not done what we did, we wouldn't need to do what we're doing now. That makes sense? We try so hard sometimes to see how close we can get to the edge of the mountain and not fall off. We try so hard sometimes to see how bad we can be and still be God's child. Hey, why don't we see how good we can be? Because Jesus didn't tell us, you know, uh, let your darkness so creep in and others question about who you are. He said, let your light so shine that others may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. There, there's a reason that God told Ephraim, I'll not come to destroy you. If he was expecting Ephraim to be perfect in his sight, God himself realizes that's an impossibility. So therefore, he sent himself and his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. To do for Ephraim what Ephraim could not do for himself. He sent the Lord Christ for you to do for you what you could not do for yourself. Hey, isn't that a good reason to try and live soberly and righteously and godly in this present evil world? Isn't that a really good reason for us to try and avoid sin? Isn't that a really good reason that what Christ has done Pay for our sins for all eternity. And a real good way to show our thanks to Him is to do the best we can to keep ourselves unspotted from this present evil world. Thank you for all the good attention.